Well, turn in your Bibles to 1 Peter chapter 4 if you have not done so already. And at the beginning, at the outset of the sermon, I need to let you know that this is a heavy sermon, but I think it's something that we need to hear, something we need to be reminded of. Just as the bad news precedes the good news of the gospel, that is, just as the bad news is that we are sinners and lawbreakers, the good news is that Jesus came to save sinners and lawbreakers. And in the same way, there is both bad news and good news in this sermon. There is joy and sorrow in this sermon. There is life and death in this sermon. And I think it will be a very sobering sermon but something that we need to be reminded of. Michael Card tells the following story of Joseph, a Maasai warrior in Africa who came to know Jesus and then began to share the gospel with others. One day, Joseph, who was walking along one of these hot, dirty African roads, met someone who shared the gospel of Jesus Christ with him. Then and there he accepted Jesus as his Lord and Savior. The power of the Spirit began transforming his life. He was filled with such excitement and joy that the first thing he wanted to do was to return to his own village and share that same good news with the members of his local tribe. Joseph began going from door to door, telling everyone he met about the cross of Jesus and the salvation it offered, expecting to see their faces light up the way his had. To his amazement, the villagers not only didn't care, they became violent. The men of the village seized him and held him to the ground while the women beat him with strands of barbed wire. He was dragged from the village and left to die alone in the bush. Joseph somehow managed to crawl to a water hole and there, after days of passing in and out of consciousness, found the strength to get up. He wondered about the hostile reception he had received from people he had known all his life. He decided he must have left something out or told the story of Jesus incorrectly. After rehearsing the message he had first heard, he decided to go back and share his faith once more. Joseph limped into the circle of huts and began to proclaim Jesus. He died for you so that you might find forgiveness and come to know the living God, he pleaded. Again, he was grabbed by the men of the village and held while the women beat him, reopening wounds that had just begun to heal. Once more, they dragged him unconscious from the village and left him to die. To have survived the first beating was truly remarkable. To live through the second was a miracle. Again, days later, Joseph awoke in the wilderness, bruised, scarred, and determined to go back. He returned to the small village, and this time they attacked him before he had a chance to open his mouth. As they flogged him for the third and probably the last time, he again spoke to them of Jesus Christ the Lord. Before he passed out, the last thing he saw was that the women who were beating him began to weep. This time, he awoke in his own bed. The ones who had so severely beaten him were now trying to save his life and nurse him back to health. The entire village had come to Christ. This could happen to you, Christian. This could happen to you by people that you know 
Persecution and suffering of this caliber may be closer than any of us have ever dared to believe. And so we must arm ourselves with this way of thinking. We must be prepared to suffer for Jesus. We have to make preparation now. And the way that it seems culture is moving, I wouldn't be surprised if this kind of persecution came sooner rather than later. And in the passage before us today, Peter reminds us that we should not be surprised when we suffer for Jesus. Peter will basically remind us of something that I've told you before. If you love Jesus with all of your heart, people will hate you with all of their guts. The Messiah warrior Joseph experienced this. He did not want to hoard grace. That's what we saw in last week's passage, that we're not called to hoard grace, but to give grace away. And Joseph did not want to hoard grace. Joseph wanted to share God's grace with other, others. He wanted to share God's outrageous love with, for sinners with other sinners. And it almost cost him his life. He suffered for sharing the grace that he loved so much. And you will too, Christian. To some degree and in some way, you will suffer for being a Christian. If you love Jesus with all of your heart, people will hate you with all of their guts. But understand two things about our big idea today. Number one, you don't always love Jesus with all of your heart. Only Jesus loved God with all of his heart. And that's just the bitter truth. You've heard me say this many times. You don't love Jesus with all of your heart because you're a sinner and you choose sin over Jesus all the time. However, when I speak today of loving Jesus with all of your heart, this is what I mean. Is Jesus Christ your treasure? Is he your delight? Does he satisfy you above all worldly pleasures? Is he your everything? When Jesus is your treasure, when he is your delight, when he is your everything, then people will hate you with all of their guts. The second thing I want to say about our big idea today is this. I don't mean that every single person that hears that Jesus is your treasure will really hate you with all of their guts. When I say that people will hate you, I'm just echoing Jesus who said this in Mark 13, 13. You will be hated by all for my name's sake. And Peter will say the same thing today. I wonder where he got the idea. Peter will talk about suffering for the name of Christ. I'm just echoing the words of Jesus from John 15, 18. He said, if the world hates you, know that it has hated me before it hated you. I don't mean that every person that is not a believer will be full of vitriol for you because of Jesus. Some will. Some people will really hate you with all of their guts because you're a disciple of Jesus. And then some nice upstanding citizens may just put up with you and your passion for Jesus. 
But when you love Jesus with all of your heart and you are boasting in his work for you and not your work for him, then that truth will bother people. Sinful and rebellious human beings don't want to be told that they need a savior. Sinful and rebellious people don't want to hear the law of God. They don't want to be exposed as sinners and rebels. They don't want to be told that they need saving and that they can't save themselves. So when you tell them that, when you share the gospel with them, they will not like it. And they just might hate you with all of their guts. And that's exactly what Peter's audience was going through. They were vocal about the gospel, vocal about their love for Jesus. They were vocal about God's outrageous love for sinners. And it brought suffering into their lives. So Peter writes to encourage them that this is just part and parcel of what it means to follow Jesus, of what it means to be a disciple of Jesus. People will hate you just like they hated Jesus. Now look at 1 Peter chapter 4 at verse 12. Beloved, do not be surprised at the fiery trial when it comes upon you to test you as though something strange were happening to you. Right off the bat, Peter reminds us that we should not be surprised when fiery trials come into our lives. And the fiery trial that Peter has in mind here is suffering for the name of Christ. Suffering because you're a Christian, because you're a disciple. When we suffer persecution, it should not surprise us as if something strange were happening to us. And the reason why is because Jesus himself told us, you will be hated for my name. And Peter, no doubt, had experienced this himself. Part of the suffering that we undergo, Peter says, is to test us. Remember what Peter said early on in this chapter, in chapter early on in this letter, in chapter 1, verses 6 through 7. He said, in this you rejoice, in this great salvation, in this person, Jesus Christ. In this you rejoice. Though now for a little while, if necessary, you have been grieved by various trials, so that the tested genuineness of your faith, more precious than gold though it per- that perishes, though it is tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Peter knows that we will suffer for being Christians. We will be hated by this world, so we should not be shocked. We should not be surprised when our coworkers and family members and neighbors and friends, when they malign us and ridicule us because we believe the words in this book. Peter also knows that because we live in a fallen, broken world, then we will suffer other things like loss and the death of a loved one and sickness and tragedy. Peter doesn't deny the reality of the storms of life. What Peter does is give us a ballast to sustain us in the midst of the storms, and that ballast is the sovereignty of God over our suffering. So we can rejoice, Peter says, when we suffer in whatever way. We suffer because we share the gospel with people and they don't like it. Or if we suffer because we live in a fallen, broken world. In whatever way that we suffer, we can rejoice when we suffer. Because Peter says we know that this suffering will only last for a little while. There's coming a day when Jesus will restore this fallen, broken world. He will make all things new and we will see him face to face. So when Peter says for a little while, he's talking about this little 
blip on the radar of our life that we experience. Just for a little while, you'll suffer. Peter doesn't mean maybe just for a couple of weeks you'll suffer for a couple months and then you get a break because Peter knows that some people suffer their entire life in this fallen, broken world. But when he says for a little while, he means that in this life compared to eternity, this is just a little bit, a little bit. It's just for a little while. We can still rejoice when we suffer because when we compare our present sufferings with the glory of eternity, as Paul says in 2 Corinthians 4, there is no real comparison. When we compare our present sufferings with the glory of eternity, then our, our sufferings are truly only for a little while. But right now, in this life, in this fallen world, we must, we must undergo suffering, which Peter describes in chapter 1 with words like grieved, trials, tested, and fire. And so now the million-dollar question is why? Why must we as believers in Jesus Christ go through various multicolored trials in this life? Why does Peter say it's necessary that we go through trials that grieve us? Trials that test us, trials that feel like burning and consuming, everything's being consumed. Why? Well, Peter gives the answer in chapter 1, verse 7. He says, so that the tested genuineness of your faith, more precious than gold that perishes though it is tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. So ultimately, the reason we go through trials is to honor and glorify Jesus so that when we make it through, we point to him and say, you're the only reason I made it through this trial. All glory to you. But from our perspective, the purpose clause is there. It's so that, it's that trials come to test us. He says, so that the tested genuineness of your faith. Peter says that in our passage today, 1 Peter 4, 12, that when the fiery trial comes upon you, to test you. So we go through trials, ultimately, of course, to glorify Jesus on the day when his glory is revealed. But we go through trials, we go through tr suffering for the gospel so that our faith will be tested. So that Jesus will be glorified and so that our faith will be tested, Peter says. Suffering tests the genuineness of our faith. Is it real? The Greek word has to do with testing to prove the genuineness of something. Like maybe you buy a new pair of jeans and you put your hand in that pocket and you pull out a slip of paper that says tested by number 34. So whoever number 34 is in the factory, they kind of tugged on those jeans, checked the, the, the zipper and, and the, the loops and the buttons and made sure. And they said, this, it's approved. This is ready to go out. That's the idea, idea here. Testing trials, suffering in whatever form happen so that we come through it to the end and we are approved. Essentially, and this even burns and stings to say it, essentially, trials burn away our tendency to trust in ourselves. Trials have a way of burning and consuming our tendency to trust in ourselves. And God knows how much we trust in ourselves. And John Calvin knew that, which is why he said this, deeply rooted in all of us is an arrogance which persuades us that we are righteous, truthful, wise, and holy. Deeply rooted in every single one of us is this arrogance that tricks us and persuades us 
that we are righteous. That we're not as bad as the pastor says. He keeps saying I'm a bad sinner. I don't believe that. That's because you have this deep down arrogance which is tricking you and trying to persuade you that you're not as bad as he says you are. This deep down arrogance that tries to persuade us that we are truthful. I'm truthful with everything I say. We probably say more white lies than we want to admit. This deep down arrogance that tries to trick us into thinking we're wise. We're wise in our own eyes and that we are holy. At least more holy than that person. So trials come along and they expose all the lies that we have believed about ourselves and they expose all the self-righteousness that we all cling to. Trials expose all the idols in our hearts that we cling to. Trials expose just how self-centered we are. Trials expose us as builders of little kingdoms of self. And that's one reason why God sends them. Our faith, Peter says, is like gold. It must pass through the fire. It must be tested. And why does gold go through the fire? To burn away the impurities. And why do we as believers have to go through the fire, through trials, through suffering? Because it purifies us, because it sanctifies us, because it burns off the impurities, because it burns away our tendency to trust in ourselves. But you may be thinking, I'd rather take a sanctification pill for that. I would too. I take two in the morning every day. I'd rather take a sanctification pill for that than have to go through the trials. Or you may think, well, just let me read my Bible and let that transform me. How about that? Just let me read my Bible all the time and that can be the means through which I am transformed and changed. Well, Bible reading is one means to transformation, but it's not the only means. There are several means of God's grace. It's the word of God, it's the sacraments, baptism, and the Lord's Supper, and it's prayer. But one of the ways that God transforms us is through the fires of trials and sufferings. One of the ways that God transforms us is when we suffer for the sake of the gospel, when we suffer for Christ's name. That means then, Christian, that there is a level of growth and godliness that cannot be achieved only through Bible reading. There is a level of growth and godliness that cannot be achieved only by prayer. There is a level of growth and godliness that cannot be achieved only through fellowship. There is a level of growth and godliness that can only be achieved through suffering. And none of us wants to go to that place naturally. We never intend to go to the place of suffering. We don't make plans to go to this place. We don't wake up in the morning and say, I can't wait to see how I'm going to suffer today. If you wake up and think that, we need to do some counseling. That's not normal. In fact, we often avoid that place, don't we? We avoid the place of suffering. We avoid the place of trials, the place of pain, the place of being tested, and the place of fire. Why? Because we'd rather take a sanctification pill for that than have to go through it. We don't naturally choose to suffer. We don't naturally choose trials to come into our lives. And I don't think we should. But we could never produce Christ-like character if we never went there. So God lovingly takes us by the hand and he leads us to the fire. 
And that's why Peter says that we should not be surprised at trials that come into our lives. We should not be surprised or shocked when trials come into our lives and it feels like life is falling apart. We should not be startled when people hate our guts because we shared the gospel with them. Instead, Peter says, we should rejoice. And we can do that when we suffer trials, specifically when we suffer because we share the gospel with someone and we suffer persecution. We can rejoice in that moment because Jesus is our treasure. We rejoice in suffering because we have Jesus and nothing can separate us from his love, not even death, even if they were to kill us because we love Jesus. Death would only get us closer to him, right? Look at verse 13. But rejoice insofar as you share Christ's sufferings, that you may also rejoice and be glad when his glory is revealed. If you are insulted for the name of Christ, you are blessed because the spirit of glory and of God rests upon you. So we can rejoice even when we suffer for Christ's name, when we suffer because we are Christians, even when we share in Christ's suffering, we can rejoice because we know that we will rejoice and be glad when his glory is revealed. When he returns, we know we're gonna rejoice and be glad on that day. We will not stand before him ashamed on that day. We will be excited to see him. If we are insulted for the name of Christ, Peter says we are blessed. The word can be translated as happy. We can rejoice, as Peter says in 1 Peter 1.8, with joy that is inexpressible and filled with glory. When we suffer, he says, because we have the Spirit of God. As Paul says in 2 Corinthians, we have the Spirit of God as a down payment, guaranteeing what is to come. What is to come? Future glory, being with Jesus forever on the new heavens and the new earth. So we can rejoice in this life when we suffer because we know that we will rejoice when his glory is revealed. So that means then, Christian, when you are slandered because you are a Christian, when you are made fun of because of what you believe, rejoice in that moment. When your coworker maligns you because you follow Jesus, rejoice. When your family member doesn't understand why you believe what you believe and they give you a hard time, rejoice in that moment. When your neighbor thinks you're a quack, because you love Jesus, rejoice in that moment. Rejoice and never forget. And don't be surprised that when you love Jesus with all of your heart, people will hate you with all of their guts. It's going to happen. You will suffer because you are a Christian. People will hate your guts because you are a disciple. When you share the gospel with others, when you say no to joining them in their flood of debauchery, as Peter described earlier in chapter 4, then people will hate you. If they hated Jesus, they will hate you. So make no mistake about it. You will suffer for Jesus. You might be thrown to lions. You might be eaten by cannibals. You might be beaten to death. You might be beheaded. You might be burned alive. Or you might just be ridiculed and mocked by a family member, a coworker, a neighbor, or a friend. But make no mistake about it. You will 
suffer for Jesus. You will be hated. Let me add that this is why the cross is front and center here at Grace because the cross reminds us of that truth. We need a weekly reminder every Sunday that we are people of the cross. This is our focus, Grace. The sign, the cross, screams at us every week when we enter the sanctuary that we have been united to Jesus, that we are in union with him, that we died with him when he died, and that the curse of the law no longer hangs over us. There is now, therefore, no condemnation nation from the law for those who are in union with Christ Jesus. We are free. I hope you're free today, Christian. I hope you're walking in freedom. And that cross is the sign of your freedom. That cross screams out to us that we are a free people and there is no condemnation. I don't care what you did last week. I don't care what you did last night. If you're a believer in Jesus Christ, there is no condemnation for you anymore. You died when he died on that cross. So let me ask you again this morning. Is the cross your passion? Is Jesus your treasure? Does he bring more delight to your heart than anything in this world? Does Jesus bring more delight to your heart than your children, than your spouse? Can you say today to live is Christ, and to die is gain. Can you leave your family behind today because you died, and can you call it gain? Is Jesus your passion? Is the cross your passion? If the cross is your passion, let me give you a warning this morning. The cross is offensive That cross is offensive. That cross is politically incorrect. And that's why it needs to be front and center in this room. And it needs to be where our eyes are drawn and focused every week in here. But make no mistake about it. It is very offensive to people. And that's why if you love Jesus with all of your heart, people will hate you with all of their guts. We align ourselves as disciples, as Christians. We align ourselves with the brutal, bloody death of the Son of God on our behalf on the cross. And the message that we preach, the message that we cling to, the gospel message is very offensive. People will not like it when you share the gospel with them. The gospel is, as Paul says in 2 Corinthians chapter 2, Verses 15 through 16, it is the smell of decomposed bodies to unbelievers. 2 Corinthians 2, 15 through 16, for we are the aroma of Christ to God among those who are being saved and among those who are perishing, to one a fragrance from death to death, to the other a fragrance from life to life. When you share the gospel, for some people it'll be life to them and they'll cling to it and they'll be born again. When you rehearse the gospel with yourself and other believers, there's life, which is why we talk about the gospel all the time here, because you need to hear that life. It'll be life to a believer. But to some who never believe, the gospel is death to them. When you share the gospel with some people, it will be like you handed them a decomposed arm or leg. They will not like it. 
Would you like it if someone gave you a smelly, disgusting, rotting piece of human flesh? Well, that's how some people respond to the gospel. And that means that we will suffer for the sake of the gospel when we share it because it's death. It's the smell of death. It's the smell of decomposed bodies to some people. They hated Jesus and they will hate us too. But Peter wants to make sure that we are not misled here. Sometimes people suffer because they do bad things, stupid things. Sometimes people, even Christians, suffer because they make bad decisions. Look at verse 15. But let none of you suffer as a murderer or a thief or an evildoer or as a meddler. Yet if anyone suffers as a Christian, let him not be ashamed, but let him glorify God in that name. Peter is saying that if you're going to suffer, suffer because you bear the name of Christ. Suffer because you're a Christian. Suffer because you're telling people about Jesus. Be ridiculed because you follow Jesus, because you are a disciple. But don't suffer because you sinned big time or made a huge mistake with your life. Don't suffer, Peter says, because you killed someone. Don't suffer because you stole something. Don't suffer because you meddled in people's affairs. Perhaps a very recent illustration will help you understand Peter's point. Maybe you heard the news this week that UFC light heavyweight champion John Jones was stripped of his championship title and indefinitely suspended by the UFC. And why did this happen? Because he was involved in a hit and run. And he hit and he ran. He actually hit a pregnant woman, and it was later revealed that she broke her arm. So running from a hit hit and run is a misdemeanor. If somebody's seriously injured, it gets bumped up to a felony. So now he's facing felony charges. After the wreck, John Jones ran away, came back to the car, took some cash, a wad of cash that he had left there, and then took off running again and was wanted by the police for over 24 hours was later revealed that drugs and drug paraphernalia were also found in his car in his car and that's why he got stripped of his title and suspended. And John Jones claims to be a Christian. And and maybe he is. He's got Philippians 4:13 tattooed on his chest. If that doesn't make you a Christian, I don't know what does, right? He claims to be a Christian, and maybe he is. I don't know. I'm only going by what he says, what he says on his Twitter account, what I've heard him say in interviews. Listen, we're all sinners. I'm not here to throw John Jones under the bus because I think he's the greatest fighter the USC has ever seen, and I like this guy. I'm not throwing him under the bus. I need Jesus just as much as John Jones needs Jesus. But Peter would say, that's exactly what I'm talking about in verse 15. Don't suffer because you did something stupid or because you messed up your life because of sin. Don't suffer because you did some heinous sin. Rather, suffer because you're a Christian. And when you suffer for being a Christian, Peter says there's no shame in it. Nothing to be ashamed of. Surely John Jones feels a lot of shame now. He's more or less said that on Twitter. He let down a lot of people. And of course, there is hope for John Jones in the gospel. There's hope for anyone who makes a train wreck of their life, even after they become a Christian. But he feels a lot of shame now, I'm sure. But when you suffer for being a Christian, you don't have to be ashamed. There's no shame in that. You don't have to be embarrassed 
because you believe what this book says, even though the news wants to redefine marriage, wants to redefine gender, all those things, and that's what the world says, and this book says different. You don't have to be embarrassed by that at your workplace. You don't have to be embarrassed by the fact that you believe that marriage is a union between one man and one woman in covenant under the authority of the God of the universe. You don't have to be embarrassed by the fact that you believe that God made men and women and we're not to change our gender and all that. You don't have to be embarrassed that you believe that, even though people at your work and in your family, in your neighborhood, and in your workplaces tell you otherwise. You do not have to be ashamed of this book or the Savior that you serve, that you read about in this book. You can rejoice, you can glorify God in the name of Jesus at your workplace. When Jesus is your treasure, you glory in his name when you suffer. And it doesn't matter what your coworkers say about you. It's not a popularity contest, okay? You're not there to be popular, to be loved, and to be liked by people. It'd be great if everybody liked us, but Jesus said, you're going to be hated because of me. John Piper said, Jesus' path to glory was self-denying suffering, not self-exalting popularity. It's not a popularity contest to get people to like you. When you tell them why Jesus came because they're sinners and they need to be saved, some people will not like it. You will be hated. But you can glorify God in that moment. You can rejoice in that name because you are in union with Christ, Christian. You have his righteousness. Your record of obedience, probably, I'm gonna go on a limb here. Your record of obedience probably stunk this past week, but you have been credited with the righteousness of Jesus Christ, the only righteousness that can get you into the presence of a holy God. Therefore, when you suffer, when they malign you, you can rejoice because you can say, you know what? No matter what I've done this week, I am in union with Christ. I am blameless in his eyes. There is now no condemnation for me. Your sins are forgiven, Christian. You've been adopted into God's family You have a faithful high priest, Jesus Christ, who intercedes for you. You have Jesus. And that's why you can rejoice when you suffer for being a Christian. Because you may not have people's favor. You may not be loved by your coworkers. But you have God's favor. And you are eternally loved by him. And when those truths get down into your pores, you can endure suffering. You can rejoice and glorify God because you know that the path of suffering leads to future glory with Jesus. But not so for the unbeliever. The sufferings that you experience in this life have a purpose, but not so for the unbeliever. Look at verse 17. For it is time for judgment to begin at the household of God, and if it begins with us, what will be the outcome for those who do not obey the gospel of God? And if the righteous is scarcely saved, what will become of the ungodly and the sinner? Therefore, let those who suffer according to God's will entrust their souls to a faithful creator while doing good. Our sufferings have a purpose They purify us. They conform us more and more to the image of Jesus. And I think that's what Peter means when he says that judgment begins at the household of God. He doesn't mean that we will be judged for our our sins because we know that God has already dealt with our sins at the cross. Jesus was judged for our sins. Jesus paid the penalty of our sins. It's a done deal. 
So what Peter means when he says that judgment begins at the household of God is that God is purifying his church, his people, through suffering. And the phrase, if the righteous is scarcely saved, does not mean that Christians just barely make it through to heaven. No, we're in union with Christ. We're going to make it to heaven. You know, the Greek has the idea of with difficulty. Believers are saved and then we are purified through suffering. In other words, God uses sufferings and trials to test us and then to purify us, to burn away our self-confidence. And if God uses suffering to purify his people, then what about unbelievers? What about those who don't obey the gospel of God? What will their outcome be? We know that their end will be eternal damnation in hell. So think about this for a moment, and I can't remember which Puritan said it. It's something along these lines. This life is the only hell believers will experience, and this life is the only heaven unbelievers will experience. All of our sufferings in this life are the only hell that we will ever experience, church. But the closest thing to heaven for an unbeliever is this life. This life which is full of pain and tragedy and sorrow and suffering. That's it. This broken world is the closest thing to heaven that unbelievers will experience. And the closest hell that we will ever experience, the closest we'll ever get to hell is what we endure in this life, but not so for the unbeliever. This is as close as they get to heaven. And that's why we must share the hope of the gospel. It's why we must share the good news. And when we share the good news, we know that we will suffer for it. And that's why Peter says here that we must entrust our souls to God, our faithful creator, and continue to do good. If we suffer according to God's will, We should trust him and keep doing good to our neighbors. John Calvin said, all the endowments which we possess are divine deposits entrusted to us for the very purpose of being distributed for the good of our neighbor. All that we've received in this life, it's a divine deposit given to us that we would share it with our neighbor. As we saw last week, we're called to use these gifts, these endowments for the good of believers. And here, Peter is saying that we're called to give away the divine deposit of the gospel to unbelievers. And when we do that, we will suffer. We must trust God when we do good by sharing the gospel, even if we suffer for it. And we might suffer just like Richard Vermbrand did. Vermbrand was a Romanian pastor who endured 14 years of imprisonment and torture for the sake of Christ and for the sake of the gospel. And this is what he said to his people, to children and teenagers in his church to prepare them for suffering for Jesus. He said this, what shall we do about these tortures Will we be able to bear them? If I do not bear them, I put in prison another 50 or 60 men whom I know because that is what the communists wish from me, to betray those around me. And here comes the great need for the role of preparation for suffering, which must start now. It is too difficult to prepare yourself for it when the communists have you in prison. I remember my last confirmation class before I left Romania. I took a group of 10 to 15 boys and girls on a Sunday morning, not to a church, but to the zoo. 
Before the cage of lions, I told them, your forefathers in the faith were thrown before such wild beasts for their faith. Know that you also will have to suffer. You will not be thrown before lions, but you will have to do with men who would be much worse than lions. Decide here and now if you wish to pledge allegiance to Christ. They had tears in their eyes when they said, yes. We have to make the preparation now before we are imprisoned. In prison, you lose everything. You are undressed and given a prisoner's suit. No more nice furniture, nice carpets, or nice curtains. You do not have a wife anymore, and you do not have your children. You do not have your library, and you never see a flower. Nothing of what makes life pleasant remains. Nobody resists who has not renounced the pleasures of life beforehand. What he's saying to us, Grace, what he's saying to you and me is we must prepare ourselves now. You cannot wait until this kind of persecution is upon us, this kind of suffering. And it may be upon us quicker than we realize, which is why we stress making disciple, making disciples here, because I want my kids to know you will be hated because of Jesus. No one will resist in that moment unless they have renounced the pleasures of life beforehand. So let me ask you again this morning, do you love Jesus with all of your heart? Not perfectly, but is he your treasure Is he your everything? That's how you prepare yourself. You turn your eyes upon Jesus. You find your joy in him. You make him your treasure. That's how you prepare yourself today. And that's what we celebrate at the table before us today at the Lord's Supper. We celebrate that God loves sinners. I love those three words. God loves sinners. We celebrate that even when we are unfaithful, and we are all the time, and we might be unfaithful in that day when persecution of this caliber comes our way, we might even be unfaithful then. But he remains faithful. We celebrate Jesus, our treasure, at the table before us today. So come to the table today to receive grace, to receive strength for the journey ahead. Taste and see once again that the Lord is good. Come to the table today to prepare your heart to face suffering and persecution even this week. Let's pray. Father, what a heavy word it is, but we know we need to hear it. We need to be reminded of the cost of discipleship. It's not everything that there is to discipleship. It is a part of what it means to follow your son. I pray that you would strengthen us today as we celebrate the Lord's Supper. I pray that you would strengthen us to be a church that's busy making disciples, making disciples. Not that we would make every lesson and every sermon about getting our head chopped off for Jesus, but that it would be a part of our message, God. That we'd be a church who's busy making disciple, making disciples and raising up the next generation, raising up our teenagers, raising up our children to know that, yes, the world will hate you, but you have Jesus. Is he your treasure? Make us a church who can say as we leave today that Jesus Christ is my treasure, to live as Christ and to die, if it so happens, is gain.
So many times, Father, we have been unfaithful, but you remain faithful. And we cling to that promise today that you'll never leave us or forsake us. Help us now to prepare our hearts. Forgive us of our sins because they are many. We come to the table exposed as sinners who desperately need your grace. So forgive us of sinful thoughts. Forgive us of sinful words. Forgive us of sinful actions. and Forgive us of the sinful motives that drive all of our sinful thoughts, words, and actions. We turn now to look to your son who is our righteousness. In whose name we pray. Amen.